Jeremiah. Please follow along as I read, starting with verse 1, 30th chapter of Jeremiah. It will help you this morning if you can have a Bible of some fashion, whether it's digital or paper, in front of you, so that you can follow along as we study God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1, and it reads, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace, and now Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. I will burst your bonds and your foreigners, and foreigners shall no longer make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished, for thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we read and study his word. Father, we come to you, Lord, asking for you to help us, 
Help me as I preach. I pray that I will uh, preach based on your authority here in the Scriptures, not on my own authority of my own ideas. I pray, God, that you would give all of us open hearts, hearts that are soft, ready to receive this word, so that we might come to the healer and know that the incurable wound is not incurable, because with you all things are possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to preach to you this morning on this theme, healing the incurable wound. Healing the incurable wound. Your tumor is inoperable. You have two months at best. What would you do if you received that news? A friend of mine recently received news very similar to that. What do we do? Well, we weep, we think, we consider our lives, we gather those we love close to us, we pray. And even though the doctor said that, we actually have some hope, don't we? Because we do know that we serve a God who is a healer. We serve a God who can take away an inoperable tomb if he so desires. We also know that doctors can be wrong, right? That's happened. So we have some hope. But what do we do, though, if it's God who comes to us and says, you're inoperable? What do we do if the great physician comes to us and says, you can't be cured? That is cause for despair. That is cause for some serious tears. And that is the news that Israel receives here in Jeremiah. Why are they weeping? Look at verse 15. In verse 15, why do you cry over your hurt? Answer, your pain is incurable. Why are you weeping? It's because you have a wound that is incurable. You have a wound that has left you with an incredible sense of hopelessness. Now, if you're new to the garden, we've been in the book of Jeremiah. We're walking through this book chapter by chapter. A couple quick things to catch you up. God has called Israel to repent. Israel did not repent. Judgment came in the form of Babylon, the kingdom of the north coming down. And Babylon in the year 597 took the first 10,000 exiles into captivity from Israel. The first sweep of attack came. And now we have 10,000 exiles who resigned to God's judgment and they find themselves now in the land of 
Babylon, living as servants, as slaves. And in chapter 29, last week we saw that Jeremiah penned a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And the letter basically said, you're going to be there a long time. It says some other things that were very encouraging. You can find that online if you'd like to hear the message. But he said, you're going to be there for a long time. However, here was the encouraging piece he left them with. When Babylon's time is over, when the, when the, when the time is fulfilled, you're going to come back. God's going to somehow restore Israel. He's going to bring them out of slavery back into the promised land. Well, that leaves the exiles with a lot of questions, doesn't it? How is God going to do that when Babylon is so great? How is God going to do that when the temple is destroyed? How is God going to do that when we have a covenant that has been broken and God has divorced us as His people? How is God going to do that when we have these hearts that are so rebellious that, con- that constantly turn against Him, that do not seek Him fully. Well, that's what we find in the next four chapters. Answers to those questions. In verse 2, you see here, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write a book. He's not actually talking about the whole book of Jeremiah. He's talking about the next four chapters. Chapter 30 through chapter 33, these four chapters are known often as the book of consolation. Everybody say that together. The book of consolation. That's what we're getting into. The book of consolation. Actually, I think like two of you, just try it again. The book of consolation. Why is it called the book of consolation? Well, it consoles. It's written to comfort those who are in exile, those who are faithful to God, but now find themselves as slaves in a foreign land. And so God writes through Jeremiah this book to comfort the exiles. And what we're going to find in the next four chapters is that God is going to give them a new heart. God is going to renew the people. God is going to give them a new temple. God is even going to make with them a new covenant. But first, what we see here in chapter 30 is that God is about to heal this incurable wound. A wound that has been brought on by their own persistent sin is going to be healed by God's own initiative. So where can the wounded sinner find healing? Well, that is the question that Jeremiah seeks to answer first as he begins this book of consolation. As we look at it, we see first in verses 4 through 11, the simple truth that God will save. God will save. In verse 5, the people are crying out. There is a cry heard from the land of Babylon of terror and no peace. In verse 6, Jeremiah gets sarcastic again, which he often is. And he says, can men have babies? Then why do I see a bunch of grown men crying as if they're in labor, holding their bellies? This is a picture he's using, I think, to conjure up sort of an image of like, 
just complete despair and, uh, at, at this pain that they're experiencing. But it's also an image, though, think about it, that takes us back to Genesis 3. The curse came on humanity. One of the curse, uh, aspects of the curse was pain and childbearing. I think he's pulling up for us this image of curse. And he's saying Israel as a people are a people who are feeling the pain of the curse in verses 7 through 11. We see here how God is going to take His own ability, His own power on God's own initiation. God is going to do something for this crying people. Look at verse 9. He says, but they shall serve the Lord their God. Remember, they're in Babylon serving the king of Babylon. But there is coming a day when they will serve the Lord their God and, who does it say next? It says, and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. Keep that right here, okay? We're going to come back to this theme of David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. Because, by the way, David has been dead for 400 years. And as the people in Babylon look back to the days of David, for them, that would have been the golden era. That would have been, those, were the, those were the days when we were ruling in the promised land, and we were, we, we were obeying God, and we had King David. And God is saying here that there's coming a time when David will be raised up from the dead. I think on one hand, this would have sounded very strange to the people in exile. But on the other hand, it would have been a theme not so uncommon because they would have been familiar with Psalm 89 verse 4, which says that God is going to give David a throne that lasts forever. So in some fashion, David is going to be raised up from the dead or one like David will be raised up who will sit on the throne and reign. Secondly, in the next section here, we see that God will save, how? Through healing this incurable wound. Israel has a mortal wound. Look at verse 12. But, but thus, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. This word incurable is the same word that's used of David's own child in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When David's child is born after his affair with Bathsheba and the boy gets sick, the word that comes from the Lord is the boy is incurable. Well, what does that mean for David's child? What does it mean? If you are familiar with the story, you know that his child dies. When he gets that word, it's incurable, that actually means, like, it's incurable. Hopelessness. The, 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 the curse of judgment for David's affair with Bathsheba has fallen on his own son, and it is incurable, and the boy dies. This word incurable is not a happy word. This word incurable is not a word that a sinner would want to hear coming from God who is their only hope. In verse 14, he says, and nobody cares. 
Not only do you have a mortal wound, not only did the doctor come to you and say, hey, can't do anything for you, you're going to die, but at the same time, all of your friends and all of your lovers have turned their back on you and nobody cares. Like you send out that blast email like, hey everybody, I'm dying, and nobody responds. You put it on Facebook, because you know how that's how we get all the sympathy whenever we're going through some challenge, right? We just Facebook it, really de depressed today. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Pray, praying for you, like, you put it on Facebook and you don't even get like a like. Which I never know what to do with those. Do you like it? Teardrops, see, I don't even get into all that. It's either like or not like for me. <laughs> but you don't get any of that. Like, nobody cares. Is, that's the state that Israel, this is how bad this wound is because of the persistence of their own sin. Now, why? We see it right there in verse 15. The reason is given. It's their own guilt. The reason they are wounded, the reason that nobody cares, the reason this judgment has come upon them is because God has brought the judgment upon them. Like, we can't even blame this on Babylon. But God has given us this incurable wound, and that is because we have been persistent sinners. That is because Israel has guilt, in verse 15, all over them. But then all of a sudden, in verse 16, there's a turn of events. It just changes Look at verse 16, out of nowhere, he says, therefore, I'm going to devour all of your enemies. Your wound is incurable. You're dead. You're dead meat. Nobody cares. Therefore, I'm about to do something for you. And then in verse 17, what we see is what he's going to do is he is going to bring the healing that only God can bring. And this healing, this salvation, this restoration is going to be complete. Not in part, but complete. You know the movie The Hunger Games? In the movie The Hunger Games, there's this sort of evil empire that has taken over the entire world, and they require tribute from the people from all of the nations. This is the way that in the ancient world, kings would actually operate. They would give people a sense of restoration. They would give people a sense of freedom. We're going to let you live in your land and work jobs. However, we're going to require a tribute to remind you of your guilt. What I see here in the next section in verses 18 through 21, is that God doesn't require tribute from the people whom He restores. It's not like God gives them back a little bit, but He's going to keep for Himself a tribute to remind them of their guilt, but rather God, in verses 18 through 21, restores them completely. The city and the palace is going to be rebuilt. Their worship is going to be restored as they sing songs of thanksgiving in the temple. 
Families are going to multiply and there's going to be a great heritage for those who come after them. Their oppressors are going to be forever shut down and God will take care of anybody who opposes them. And there is going to be a prince and a ruler that rises up out of their midst. And this prince, this one who is like David, is one that they will serve. Their healing is going to be complete. And then as this chapter comes to a close in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, we see that God is going to save in faithfulness to his own covenant that he made with Abraham. Look, look at the end of the chapter here briefly with me. Verse 22 and 23 and 24. Verse 23 and 24 are actually pretty sad, taken on their own. Let me read those two verses to you. Verse 23, behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days you will understand this. These last couple verses, after verses of such hope, of healing, kind of make us go, hmm, what's he getting at there? Like just by themselves, it seems pretty bleak again. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. We see earlier, uh, God says, you can't get away from it. There is no sin that will go unpunished. Judgment for sin is coming. But then what I see here in verse 22, and then also repeated in chapter 31, verse 1, is covenantal language. Now, I know this is starting to sound all theological, but stick with me for just a second. Covenantal language, meaning language that would have been attached to the covenant that God gave with his people. This language is very familiar to God's people, and it says this, you shall be my people and I will be your God. That phrase caps this final word of wrath at the end of the chapter. What that's telling us is this, that God is going to be faithful to his people. That God's wrath is coming, yes. God's judgment is coming, yes. But not in such a way that will violate the promise that He made with His people in which He said, you shall be My people and I will be your God. Now, they don't understand this, which is why it says at the end of verse 24, in the latter days you will understand this. This leaves them scratching their heads. But in the latter days, which is a.k.a. today, after Jesus Christ's ascension, we are now in the latter days, we understand that, don't we? We understand how God's judgment can actually bring about salvation for His people. How God can require justice when we have wronged Him and at the same time offer grace. God is a God of His promises and healing is coming. So, where can the wounded sinner find healing? I wonder if anyone here is wounded this morning. I wonder if anyone here has a sense of hopelessness, a sense of I've wandered so far. 
I've betrayed Him so many times. I've turned my back so often, so frequently. I feel so wounded before God. Is there hope for a wounded sinner? How can someone who feels absolutely hopeless in this world have any hope? Well, that is the question that we need to answer this morning. Let me, let me apply this passage to you through three different questions and answers. Number one, why do we weep? Why do we weep? Have you ever watched a sad movie and as you're getting kind of toward the end of it and you realize like, oh my goodness, that's how the movie's going to end? Oh no, she's going to die. You know that moment in the movie where it just like hits you and you want to pause it and if you still are like old school and you use DVDs, you want to go to the DVD menu and see if there's any alternative endings and just watch those instead, right? Well, this is sort of this feeling that we get when we hear that there is an incurable wound. Because of the persistence of our sin, we have a wound that is incurable. And there is a real sense in which we ought to be reading the Scriptures, examining our life, reading passages like this, and have this oh kind of movement <laughs> where we realize, like, I don't want to go this direction. I don't want to, I don't want to move in that. I don't want to... I don't want I don't I don't want to I don't want I don't want the story to end this way. And we start thinking through is it possible to have an alternative ending? Is it possible for my life which is moving this direction to, to experience something new? For there to be a new movement in my life of God's grace. Why do we weep? Well, we weep first because the pain is incurable. I believe that the reason we are so often discouraged and sad and angry and bitter in life is because we have a sense of hopelessness. And you might believe it here. You might be able to recite the doctrines of our faith. Then why are you weeping? Why are you so angry all the time? Why are you so sad and discouraged? Why are you such a bitter individual? I think it's because here we're hopeless. It's because we realize that there is a deep wound and I don't know what to do about it. We weep because our guilt is great. Listen, I, I believe humans know they are guilty. I believe the, the most convinced atheists out there, maybe in this room, knows they're guilty. Like for someone who comes along and says, you know, I have no guilt. I've got nothing that I can think of in my life that really would condemn me before God. I don't think you actually believe that. Like I think that we know down deep that there is an issue in our life. And this is why we drink so much. This is why we get high. This is why we run to various love affairs. 
This is why we look at things on the internet to change our mind. This is why we look at our kids and just try to find our identity in our kids and spend all of our energy playing with them, hoping that we can get something out of them. Like this is why we get so angry when our spouse upsets us because they're not giving for us to us what we need. I think it's because we're just constantly trying to find ways to cover up the pain and the wound that we really know is there. And that is guilt. You know, as we think about our own guilt, we've got to be honest with ourselves in the fact that we have brought it upon us. Because some people might say, oh yeah, I've got wounds, let me tell you about them. And then they start talking about people and events that have brought wounds into their life. And we can't be honest about the fact that the deepest wounds that are in our life are self-inflicted. Don't get me wrong, people and events can bring wounds into your life. Hurt people hurt people. That's true. But to be honest, the deepest wounds we have are not there just simply because we are innocent victims in this world, but rather it's the, re- it's the way that we respond to the world. It's, 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 it's the way that we responded to that person who hurt us. It's our sinful response to the event, that tragedy that took place. Like, don't you realize that you can have a tragedy and one person goes this way toward God and one person goes that way away from God? Well, we can't say the tragedy is at fault. It's our heart that's the problem. It's our response to the world around us that is the problem. The greatest wounds that we have are self-inflicted. We are willing participants in this world that has brought judgment upon us. We are not innocent victims. As I think of Baltimore, and I think of the news recently in which we see that, uh, that Baltimore is, quote-unquote, the most violent city in America, according to recent statistics. That should cause us to weep. There should be a sense there of sadness, of lament, as we recognize that, that sin has wreaked havoc on our neighbors. But then we can't stop there, and we have to take it inward. We have to say, wait a second, why do the nations rage? It's because of sin in man's own heart. As long as we have rage in here, there will be rage out there. As long as we are warring within ourselves, as long as we have these, these issues of pride, sin that compete within our heart, there is going to be violence on the outside. As we look inward, we have to ask ourselves honest questions. How are we doing? Like, how are you really doing? Like, you know that guy that asks you, hey man, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you really doing? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> don't ask me that question. It's not good. I'm not good. <laughs> Try it. You can make somebody cry doing that. <laughs> Why is it? We've got to be honest with ourselves. Where are you in life? Are you safe? Really? Are you really safe? Do you have enough money? 
You have enough security. Nothing's going to go wrong. Your health, you're good, you're safe. Who are you? Who defines you? You see, the way that we ask these questions, or the, I'm sorry, the way that we answer these questions begin to show us that we are seriously wounded in this world. We have some significant pain and some significant need in this world. Where does the sinner go to find healing? Well, we sing this old song that we sang this morning. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. We are wounded. And we are to come. You might say, my marriage is so wounded, and if I'm honest with myself, I am a willing participant in that wound. Or you might say, I have been so inward focused in my life, I'm on this constant spiral of, of, of self-pity. Or you might say, I have used power and my influence to, to, uh, uh, against people manipulatively, and I'm I'm a wounded individual who has wounded so many others. Where do wounded sinners go? Wounded sinners go to Jesus. The song continues. It says, Jesus ready. He stands to save us. He's full of pity and loving power. Jesus, according to Isaiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Question number two, what is our hope? What is our hope? Well, we were in Texas a couple weeks ago. We were in Melissa, Texas, this little town, and there's a rock quarry there, sort of this man-made lake very deep. And we were driving by it and uh, one of the guys, friends of ours that lives there, he was telling us about a story of this 18-year-old this who tried to swim across the, the lake one night with two of his friends and he didn't make it all the way across and he drowned right there, right there in the middle of the lake. A tragic story as his friends try to save him. And as I think of those stories... And as I think of these, these pictures of helplessness, we have to see that as just really an example of us as helpless sinners in this world. Now, a lot of people would come along and say, well, the hope that we have in Jesus is that you're swimming across the lake and you can't go anymore and you're about to drown and Jesus comes out as the lifeguard. And he says, hey, swim this way. And he teaches you how to swim. And you're like, oh, okay, I can swim. And, and maybe he gives you a life raft and he helps you along the way and he swims you to the edge. What's the problem with that image? The problem is this. According to Ephesians 2, we didn't make it. <laughs> According to Ephesians 2, we Drowned in the middle of the lake. According to Ephesians 2, we're like corpses swollen on the bottom of the lake floor. 
which means we are incurable. Like what could, you, can, you could help somebody who's drowning in the middle of the lake if you've got a lifeguard there, but what are you going to do for the corpse on the bottom of the lake floor? Don't you realize that we really need a Savior? How can a dead man save himself? This is why, man, when we talk about how we became a Christian and we talk about stuff we did to become a Christian, it makes me question whether or not you're actually a Christian. Because a Christian knows I was dead. I had nothing to give. I was lost. I was helpless before a holy God on my way to hell. And Jesus saved me. I can't explain it any other way. He found... He found my corpse and he breathed into me new life. What is our hope? Well, if we look at this passage here, we see that first person language is used throughout the entire passage. As God is talking, and God is essentially saying, You're hopeless, you're dead meat, you're a goner, but I. We'll do something for you. How is Israel going to get back? They're not going to pick up swords against Babylon. They're not going to do something for themselves. They're not going to pull out their old hearts of stone and put in a new heart of flesh. What are they going to do for themselves? Nothing. What they need is God's sovereign grace. And God says throughout this passage, I am going to break the yoke of Babylon. I am going to raise up King David. I am going to give you a new prince and a ruler. I am going to conquer your enemies. And I am going to heal you. And as the story goes, we see these prophecies begin to be fulfilled. In 538 B.C., under a Persian king, they start to go back to the promised land. And God sends them back. And they begin to rebuild. But even then, with that first horizon of fulfillment, it's not all accomplished. The Old Testament ends, and there are still some fulfillment of prophecies that need to happen. Meaning, King David was never raised back up. We need a sequel for that. We need a part two for that. Meaning, they go back to the land, yet they still have enemies, and the text says that their enemies are going to be destroyed. By the time we get to the New Testament, we see that they're living under the Roman Empire, one of the greatest enemies of all. It demands a sequel. It demands a part two. What we see in the New Testament is the sequel of these prophecies. As Jesus comes, as the son of David, who will sit on the throne of David, in the New Testament, we see that our enemies are not really flesh and blood. They're not really Babylon, nor are they Rome. But our enemies are our principal the principalities and powers of the air. And Jesus on the cross puts to death the enemies that wage war against us. There's this paradox that is so confusing. Judgment and grace. God is going to require judgment. For every sin, God will not look away from sin. Yet at the same time, God is going to offer grace. The, you won't understand this until the latter days. 
Why is that? It's because it's a confusing paradox until we gaze upon Jesus Christ standing at the foot of the cross. And we see, ah, salvation through judgment. All of the judgment that God required was placed onto Him. And He died. He rose again from the dead. And it's not over yet. There's yet another sequel coming. A part three, if you would. As Jesus returns, and we see what has now been awakened, we see that with our own eyes. Lastly, and we'll close with this question. Why does God save us? Why does God save us? Don't give my answer away, Tony. You know the story of Gomer and Hosea? You know the story of the prodigal son? Stories we need to be very familiar with because they picture something for us. Gomer... A wife chosen by Hosea, she becomes a prostitute, she's out there ruining her life, sleeping with all these different guys. She ends up on the auction block being sold as a slave. All of her lovers have abandoned her. Nobody cares but one, Hosea. Why does Hosea run after his wife? Why does Hosea continue to pursue his wife? What does Hosea see in Gomer? Or I think of the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal squanders the inheritance. The prodigal goes out, lives it up, parties, sin. Debauchery, that's such a good word, isn't it? Everybody say debauchery. (laughs) He's left with nothing. He's eating with the pigs. He then turns and he says, well, at least I can have better food at my dad's house. And he walks home. Why does the father run to the son and embrace him? And not only embrace him, but why does the father then throw a celebration for the son, celebrating his return? What does this dad see in his broke son? Why does God save Israel? Why does God choose to restore a wayward people? Why does God save you? Why does God choose to heal our wounded souls? Well, as I've pointed out already in this text, there is no reason given. He goes straight from you're sunk to therefore I'm going to save you. Like there's a reason given for their weeping. That's their incurable wound. There's a reason given for their judgment. That's their guilt. But when it comes to God's salvation, it's just something He's going to do. Like God doesn't come along and say, Israel, I just see so much potential in you. I I see if if, if I were to save this individual that, that they've got so much potential I see that Deborah could do so much for the kingdom of God if I save her. Oh, I see Raymond, and he's such a cuddly, wonderful, cute little individual. I'm going to save him. Why does God save sinners? Family, he just does. 
He just chooses to for his own purposes, for his own intentions. If I could give a longer title to this sermon, it would be Healing the Incurable Wound by God's Sovereign Grace. Just simply because God, in His sovereign grace, chooses to save. We could say, well, He cares for us. That's true. He chooses to care for us. There in verse 17, as God has said that nobody cares for you, He says, for I'm going to restore health to you because they have called you an outcast. Like, I'm just going to do this. Nobody cares for you, but I do. Look, the world might reject you, but that pales in comparison to the acceptance and love of God, doesn't it? Nobody cares for us like Jesus. And listen, we then as His people are called to care for each other in the same way. Throughout the New Testament, what we see are one another's. After Jesus founds the church, purchases the church with His blood, and institutes the church, He calls us together and He says, now you are my people, you are my bride, you are my flesh and blood, or my, my hands and feet, you are my body. We then become Christ to one another. We then join in this healing process as we love each other. As we hear of one's wounds, as we hear of one's sins, as we hear of the guilt of the prodigal, we are people who assure people, uh, the, the, the confessing saint that God has forgiven them. And we seek to love each other in a way that is a healing kind of love. Family, do you know this healing? Do you know the healing that comes through Jesus Christ? We were incurable. The pain was incurable. We were hopeless. But God. I failed. I've squandered all of my inheritance. I ran away. I took advantage of what God has given me. I've, I've used things for my own benefit. I've turned my back on Him time and time again. But God. I've rejected Him. I've betrayed His love. I've turned to other lovers. I'm helpless. I'm ruined. I'm wounded. But God. Do you know the healing that God brings with the same passion that you used to run to the bottle or to the joint? With the same passion that you used to run to your other lovers? With the same passion that you used to run to all of your spiritual medicines? All of the things that you would use to kind of cover up the guilt and the pain? With that same kind of fervor, run to Christ. Run to Him. With all, like Be crazy about Him. See Christ as your only hope and cling to Him. And what you will discover is forgiveness. What you will discover is affirmation. 
what you will discover is that you are safe with him. And you will discover that your sins are forgiven, that you have the promise that one day you will be freed even from the presence of sin. What a healer he is. How powerful is the healing that Jesus brings into our life. Family, this world is not our end. The exile and pain that we experience today is not the end. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, we will see the king in the line of David ruling and reigning on the throne, and it will be the golden years as there will be peace. There will be no more pain, no more crying, no more death, for the old order is put away. And behold, He's made all things new. We will see the God in Christ who said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. We will be the dry bones who have been raised up from the dead to dance with Him for all of eternity. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That is the healing power that God gives us through His Son. And I hope you know it. Know Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the opportunity that we've had to be in Your Word. God, I pray that there will be no one in this room right now who walks out of here with ears that are closed, with hearts that are cold. But right now, God, I pray that You would break hearts, that You would soothe us with the balm of the gospel and that you would give us the passion for Jesus Christ that we might run to him and none other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.